From Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents The Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting edge technology, and the colored shavings. Welcome back to The Dairy Show, friends, and a special welcome to our new listeners who are joining us this week after discovering The Dairy Show during World Dairy Expo 2021. I'm Katie Schmidt. I'm the host of this podcast as well as Expo's communications manager. This episode of The Dairy Show is going to look a little different or maybe, I guess, more so sound a little different than what we have become used to over the last 24 episodes. And that's because during World Dairy Expo 2021, the question was asked, what would the food supply look like without animal agriculture? And Dr. Mary Beth Hall, a research scientist with the USDA ARS, joined us on Saturday of Expo to answer that question. And it's an answer that's worth hearing. So this is Dr. Mary Beth Hall's presentation. What would the food supply look like without animal agriculture? And good morning. And thank you for being here on this last day of the World Dairy Expo 2021. You know, what would the food supply look like without animal agriculture? I mean, I mean, to a point, it's almost asking the question, what does animal agriculture matter, All right? I mean, so first things first, animal agriculture within the United States, it employs 1.6 million people, $31.8 billion in exports, very important economically. We recycle almost 48 million tons of human and edible byproducts from food, fiber, and biofuel. Think of distiller's grains, think citrus pulp, think almond hulls, wheat mids, and on down the line that come from producing food and fuel and fiber. I mean, and besides, there's a whole variety of other products going from adhesive, ceramics, cosmetic fertilizer, on down the line, a whole variety of products that are made, that are derived from animals that we use in our society, okay? I mean, if you look at the animals we have in agriculture, it's not just about food, it's about many things altogether. The key thing about them is they can convert resources, again, like those byproduct feeds, like forages. They can convert those things that people can't use into things that we can. But you've seen what, you've seen the discussions that show up about livestock in the news. What proportion of the time are the stories positive? Okay, shake your head like this if you think, no, no, no. Shake your head like this if you think there's lots of positive. I mean, we do see positive stories out there, but the majority have this kind of look to them, where the livestock industry, is it destroying the planet? Our results suggest that vegetarians have significantly lower ischemic heart disease mortality and overall cancer incidence. Published paper. Researchers say that the only way to guarantee enough food in 2050 is if the world turns vegan. Is this true or not? And the report that came out of um, World Health Organization, came out of the UN with Livestock's Long Shadow, which was indicating that the impact of animal agriculture across the globe was huge, even compared to transportation. Now, for the record, after the fact, they figured out that they did an apples and oranges comparison because they were counting everything that went into animal agriculture or came out of it from, from production of, of, of feed on down the line. Whereas, if I remember correctly, they were only counting the fuel use within the transportation industry. Whereas you need that whole system to be evaluated to put it in proper perspective. But still, this made a mark. And there is no argument that livestock can pollute water and air, that the operations can, that the animal operations have potential to erode land, cause deforestation, can be inefficient, compete with people for food and water. And these are some of the things that, that are making the main headlines. Um, 
So somewhere back a decade or more ago, some of us were, were looking at this question and wondering what would happen if we did indeed get rid of animal agriculture. What, what, would, our, what would the U.S. at the very least look like? But because we started thinking about food webs and sustainability. How, how many of you learned about food webs in school? Okay, and, and what we've got is sunlight coming in and growing plants, insects and so forth, and animals and so forth end up eating the plants. Other predators will then end up eating the things that eat the plants. The, any and all of this will die. Um, they'll feed the plants, it'll go into the system, it'll feed the bacteria. And we have a food web where everything depends on everything else for how long it is sustained. I mean, it, it, what the food webs do is they show how resources cycle through systems. And balance within a system determines its sustainability. Now, the thing we don't often consider is that human society has its own food web. Think about that one for a moment. I mean, we've got, in our food web, we have human society, we have animal agriculture, and we have plant agriculture. And this is what the trade-offs back and forth in our food web look like. Like, for instance, with human society, that producing fiber, producing biofuels, producing food, we have byproduct feeds that we feed back to animal agriculture, and they send back food, fiber, biofuel, and other products. When we go down to plant agriculture, they send food, fiber, biofuel, and other products to human society, and human society sends back fertilizer and biosolids. And then between the plants and the animals, we have the trade-off of feed and fertilizer, at the very least. So if you look at the concept of animal agriculture being something that's worth getting rid of for the harm that it does, if that's your perspective, what you also have to do is ask the question, what happens if you got rid of it? Because that's what you seriously have to look at if we're dealing with how our entire food web is sustainable or is not. So the question that Dr. Robin White, she is a professor at Virginia Tech, um, which she and I asked was, would the US food supply and meeting the nutrient requirements of people in the US, what would it look like if we removed farmed livestock? Seems a pretty basic question if going vegan by 50-50 is the way we're going to save the planet. And, and for the record, okay, I forgot to tell you. Okay, I am from the federal government, USDA Agricultural Research Service. I am a research scientist, and I work in dairy cattle nutrition, okay? And to do this project, I, oh, I also have five dogs, and intelligent people don't have more than two. Okay, all that, all that, all that said, um, to do this project, I had to go to my center director and ask permission to do this project, because it's not exactly dairy cattle nutrition. Eh, not really. And so he gave me permission, and then he stopped, and he looked at me, and he said, well, what if it turns out that we'd be better off without animal agriculture. Well, that kind of stopped me, and I, then I looked at him, and I said, well, that would be good to know. You know. Because the point of science, whatever way the data pans out, is you've got to be transparent, you've got to put it out there, you've got to be as honest as you possibly can, because it can matter for how we're going to live and how, the, how we're going to interact with the planet, okay? Um, so at any rate, that, that's some of the backstory on this. Okay, so one of the things is, all right, getting rid of animal agriculture. One of the things that um, shows up in the stories that you read in the paper is that they're going after what are the impact of the kind of diets people say they're eating on the environment and health. But this project went like 180 degrees on that. And what we were looking at is what happened if you change the entire agricultural system to change the food and available and the nutrient adequacy and how would that affect human society? It, it was going 180 degrees for how we asked the question. Because one of the things you darn well better consider is if you're going to make a statement about how diets are going to serve 
you've got to make sure your agricultural system can support that. And so we went from the supply side as opposed to demand. All right, so just for the record, these are the data sources that we used, all independent of um, any influence we had over the data. Um, and we thought it would be the most reliable data that we had to work with. And Robin and I worked on this for four years in the background without funding from any resources to get the data, so, or to do the project. So kind of unsullied, if you want to look at it, it was not bought. Um, I mean, one of the first things we, ended up, we had to look at was what were the nutrient requirements of people of the U.S. population? So there, at the time we were doing this, there were 316 million people. We got nutrient requirements from the USDA and the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN to get the, what would the requirements be for the average human in the population for one year, okay? We looked at 36 different nutrients. A lot of the other studies out there only look at, well, did you get them enough protein and did you get them enough calories? We looked at 36 different nutrients. And it looks more like what's on the side of a box of some of the cereals. It's, we looked at protein, we looked at energy, we looked at amino acids, we looked at specific fatty acids, we looked at specific minerals and specific vitamins to look at 36 nutrients. And we didn't consider bioavailability from a plant resource versus an animal. And we'll get into this a little bit later, but bioavailability, if, let's say if you've got iron in something you eat, but you can't absorb it well, it's not very bioavailable and it can't help meet your nutrient needs. Okay? So bioavailability means how well does that feed deliver nutrients you can actually use? We, we didn't touch that here. Okay, um, this goes back to the five dogs, okay? Um, and Robin also has dogs. What we also figured out when we were looking at the nutrient requirements that we had to fill, we figured people were not gonna get rid of their pets, all right? So we also figured out how much, in terms of nutrients, were we gonna need to feed companion animals. And um, one of the things we ran into is that there is a lot of protein and fat from rendered livestock products that go into feeding our animals. And so we had to replace those with nutrients that would come from the human food supply if we got rid of animal agriculture, okay? And for the horses, we kept out 43, close to 43, well, 4.4 million acres for hay, okay? There was a lot of math involved in this project. <sighs> land use, okay, if you're gonna get rid of animal ag, you've got tillable land that had been used for animals that now can go to feed people. And this was something that showed up in Bloomberg um, back in 2018. I love this map, because if you take a look at it, okay, the yellow here, where wherever, is pasture and rangeland, and that is not gonna be usable for the human food supply, okay? You have forest, which also not usable for the human food supply. Cropland, the brown here, and here's the Central Valley of California, yes, okay? And so the crop, okay, and then you have special use, miscellaneous use, urban use, also not gonna go for food, okay? So these brown portions are where we would look at how you could convert the land use if you got rid of animals to feed people. Okay, so we had 56.2 million tillable acres in pasture, hay, and silage that we converted to crops for people, but the 415 million acres of permanent pasture or rangeland that is used by cattle or, or livestock currently, they were removed from food production, period, gone, okay? We reallocated these tillable acres based on the current proportion of land used for 89 different crops and that added 1.76 million acres of fruits, vegetables, and nuts. Now, after this paper that we wrote got published, we had a fair bit of pushback on why on earth did we keep growing that much corn grain and soybean meal and grain crops that we had used for feeding animals or export? Why did we retain that? Which, it's a fair question. Um, one, of our, one of the things we offered was, it's the best we could do because there was no information out there. And so we were transparent with what we said we did. But I tell you what, Currently, the U.S. imports 51% of their fruits and 39% of their vegetables. 
because there are some times of year we cannot grow fruits and vegetables. There is some land. There is some rainfall availability. There are some climatic conditions that don't allow you to grow fruits and vegetables everywhere. Okay? Um, and these are high-value crops. If they could be produced, I'm not sure why they wouldn't be already. Okay? But, but again, open to further discussion. So we get into weather, climate and temperature, soil quality, elevation and slope. 70% of the fruits and vegetables grown in the U.S. are irrigated. And we do run into issues of water availability. Okay? If anybody's been looking at what's been going on with Lake Mead um, and the Hoover Dam and the issues with drought in the West, it speaks to this. Um, there was also the issue of food waste, where this is information that came out of the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN back in 2011, and this is for our portion of the world. And if you look at roots and tubers, and you look at fruits and vegetables, we'll, we'll focus on fruits and vegetables. 49.6% of what they attempted to produce got wasted. And that's anywhere from harvest losses all the way to the strawberries that molded in your refrigerator, okay? Whereas when you get into any of your dry materials, your cereals, your pulses, or if you get into meat and milk in particular, you have, your losses are a lot less. And, and the percent of food wasted isn't, it's a risk to the farmer in part when they're trying to build, to grow a crop that they can sell and earn a living off of. But it's also a risk to society to figure out how to reduce this so that it actually goes to feed people. But at any rate, it's one more piece. Profitability and risk comes into this. There was one paper we found after we published, um, or, or we couldn't enter it into what we had when we published, Conrad et al, 2017, where they did an analysis of the soils, the weather, um, the water availability, and so forth. And they indicated that there was about 356,000 more acres that could go to the fruits and vegetables they were looking at, which is substantially less than the one million something we allocated. Okay? And they said that would only increase the fruit and vegetable supply by about 25 to 5.5%. Okay? Not necessarily what you'd want or need if you're trying to feed the entire US population. But, but, tell you what, it ain't over till it's over. More, more of this needs to be reviewed. Okay, food supply. When we're trying to figure out what food could be produced if we got rid of animal agriculture, okay? Remember, that's the point of this talk after I'm going through all the rest of this. Um, we looked at available foods, 26 from animal sources, 89 from plants. Grains that had been previously fed to animals, when we got rid of animal agriculture, were available to people, except for that for industrial use, held back for seed, or we were able to find information on aflatoxin-contaminated corn, which will not go into the human food supply. Cropland for animals went for food production for people. We took a look at the grains the way they had been used, and we rejiggered how they would be processed to maximize the amount that people could eat. And in coming up with what was available for people, we only supplied nutrients from foods. We didn't look at supplements. And part of the reason for doing that is we look at food, okay, there are reports out that saying foods are the best place to get nutrients from. And also, we couldn't guarantee that everybody would be supplemented with needed supplements if we got rid of animal ag. That's a whole different societal question that we did not address. But, okay, being, one of us being a nutritionist, um, and, and Dr. Robin White dealing heavily in nutrition, we formulated least cost diets for people <laughs> to, to meet their nutrient requirements using the foods that were available from the crops that could actually be produced from the land that we devoted to those crops. Okay, sidebar for this talk. We also looked at greenhouse gases because 9% of greenhouse gases in the US come from animal agriculture. Here's the way this sorted out in uh, 2013 for carbon dioxide equivalents according to the EPA for greenhouse gas generation in the US. 50% of that 9% came from animal ags. We looked at if we removed the animals, what the new crops were, synthesis of fertilizer, replace manure. We incinerated the human and edible byproducts because we couldn't figure out how to go through trucking them back to where they were made um, and recycled the phosphorus and potassium to fertilizer. 
thing that you want to look at that also doesn't get often discussed here, these are the millions of tons of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and sulfur that gets applied on the land for manure. And by the way, the, this will be on the internet and glad to share this information with any of you. Um, this is a heck of a lot of fertilizer. And if you get rid of animals, it needs to be replaced. Okay, so just to get this out of the way, when we got rid of animals, the US greenhouse gases only went down by 2.6%, okay? And agricultural greenhouse gases went down by 28%, but not the 50% associated with animals. And part of that was counterbalanced by fertilizer synthesis and the land now allocated to food production, a different food production. And the greenhouse gases are calculated off of yields of different foods. And what we ended up finding is when we got rid of animals, here is the system with animals and the amount of food that could be produced. Here is the system without animals and the amount of food could be produced. Food production increased by 23% when we got rid of animals. And this is kind of what's out there. No, it isn't kind of what's out there. It's part of what's out there saying, you know, if you got rid of animals, look at how much more food we could have. But they don't typically get into the particulars of what kind of food they would have. Okay? With the work that we did and the land allocation schemes that we used. Okay, and by the way, for, for looking at any of these graphs, and you'll see them further down the line, if you see blue, and I'm hoping you're not colorblind, if you see blue, that is from animal. That's, those are nutrients, those are food products from animals. Green is from vegetables, red is from foods, yellow is from grains, green, darker green is from legumes, and then you also get into nuts, into oil, and then sugar, in this case. If you take a look at the change here, um, the human food supply is gonna have a heck of a lot more grain available in it, because all of the foods that are now produced off the land that came from animals go into the human food supply. 77% um, of this grain was corn. Legumes, 92% was soy and soy flour, okay? The food supply looks very different. And, and again, this goes back to, it's not all gonna be fruits and vegetables because we do not have the wherewithal for that, at least with our current systems. Okay, so then what happened to the nutrients? Again, nutritionists, here's the 36 different nutrients that we looked at. And, and for reading this, the bar on the left is gonna be if animal ag was in place, and the bar right next to it is gonna be if you had plant only supplying the food. And so what you see is looking across these bars, once you get rid of animal ag, you have greater amounts of most amino acids, minerals, and vitamins. But let's take a look at this. Where, where you have a, a bluish bar here, it's where animal ag would be deficient and crop ag would be in better shape. We see that for choline, vitamin E, and vitamin K. But on the other side, you have where the plants only system would be more deficient. And that's when we're looking at arachidonic and EPA and DHA, the, the omega-3 fatty acids, that's because they primarily come from animal products. You see the same thing with calcium. You see the same thing with vitamin A. Vitamin B12 is only gonna naturally come in the diet from animal products, period. Um, and vitamin D, everything was deficient, okay? But here's the deal. Have you ever noticed people eat foods they don't eat nutrients? You ever notice that? I mean, you don't, you don't typically go, go, go up to the counter over, let's say, at Subway and say, yo, I'd like some calcium. Would, would, would you mind giving me some cysteine while you're at it? No, it, that's not what we do. So, so we took a look at, again, that least cost formulation diet, and this is what the diets look like kind of with the present system, where we were using U.S. production with animal ag and also the imports that we bring in from other countries. And the way this ends up looking is, again, here we have the animal part, the vegetable part of the diet, fruits, um, other feeds, which will be nuts and sugars and so forth, and then here's grain, about 8% grain in our current diet. The carbon dioxide 
equivalents. Our greenhouse gas footprint is about 3.29 kilograms for this. The diet cost is about four, at the time was about four bucks. Okay, how many of you have done nutrition to look at as-fed versus dry matter basis? Okay, this tells me there's a line of students who have suffered mightily, okay? Okay, so we took a look. The total food that you'd eat was about 1,500 grams, but it was only like 450 grams of those that were dry matter for what you'd have to consume, all right? And, okay, ah, the other thing you're gonna see is with these graphs I'll be showing you, on this side will be a bar graph that shows if, if any of these bars reached one, the requirement was met. If they're below that, the requirement for that nutrient wasn't met. So here, just formulating with off of least cost diets, off of the available food supply, what we find is calcium, vitamin D, and choline are deficient. So now let's take a look at the system with and without animals. And again, scenario one is to the current use of US production plus imports system with animals versus a system without animals based on the crops that we could grow with the system I described to you. With, without animals, there's less greenhouse gases, which is what everybody's saying based on the diet. The diet cost is cheaper, okay? That matters, food, what your food bill matters. Now you take a look at the total as-fed amount versus solids, and so it was about 1750 grams for as-fed with animals, and about 600 grams we'd have to eat to balance our nutrients. But when you get over to eating this much grain, you're at about 1500 grams as-fed. There's a heck of a lot of dry matter there, and I'm not sure I personally would want to eat a kilo of this a day. Okay, my I, feasibility of that, I wonder. So let's take a look at this graph. Okay, this is where the with animals are deficient. And again, we see vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin K, and choline. But that's for both sets of diets, with animals in the system and without. Without animals in the system, what you also find is you're deficient in calcium, vitamin A, B12, there's none, because it comes from animal products. Um, I'll tell you a funny story about that in a minute. Um, EPA and DHA, the omega-3 fatty acids, and arachidonic acid. We'll talk more about why those are important in a minute. I mean, they're deficient in more nutrients, and the diets ran to eat this much corn grain, this much grain in general, because we were trying to meet micronutrient needs by eating what was available that is low in micronutrients. That's where we were stuck. The micronutrients, not the macronutrients, like protein and calories, those macronutrients weren't the issue, okay? And this is the same thing that had shown up in another paper in 2016 when they tried to look at getting rid of, well, removing animal products from diets, okay? So there was also a greater food and calorie intake on the plants-only diet because we were trying to meet macro micronutrient needs off of foods that were not dense in micronutrients. Animal products are more dense in those micronutrients. Okay, why does this matter? It matters because you've gotta feed people to meet their nutrient requirements. Okay? You meet our nutrient requirements to keep them healthy, to keep them productive. I mean, productive. We'll talk more about some of, of the bits and pieces of that in a minute, but, but you'll, part of the concern are vulnerable populations as well. Growing kids, I mean, all right, for the record, I'm slightly older than 39, okay? I hope I have finished growing, mostly out. Um, and so my nutrient requirements aren't maybe as acute as a child growing up and trying to fit all of the amino acids, the fatty acids, the vitamins and minerals in the small enough package that they can consume so they can grow and develop well and normally and be healthy, all right? Um, so it's like, yeah, don't worry about me, worry, worry about them, okay? Pregnant women. You know, one of the things that, that has bothered me no end is, is when studies evaluated only protein and calories and food portions. I will say for the record, and this is a technical term, food, no, I'll leave that, I, I work for the federal government and I will behave myself in my talk. 
Um, food portions don't tell you nutrient requirements, which are the thing that matter. Um, in these studies where they look at just protein and calories and food portions, did they assume people were going to get supplemented for what those diets didn't give them? They never said, not the ones that I've read. And plants have low or no concentrations of some nutrients. Bioavailability was the issue. This is what some of those micronutrients that show up in animal foods but don't show up in plant products without supplementation are, are at hand. Omega-3 fatty acids. In infants, they're important for cognitive and visual development. In adults, listed for cardiovascular health. Omega-6 fatty acids, FAO is giving recommendations on those for children for the development of visual acuity. Calcium for bones, for bone development, elect maintenance, electrolyte, milk production, and many physiological functions, okay? Vitamin B12, brain and nervous system, red blood cell formation, it matters. Okay, now, now here is the one point where you will hear a scientist become professionally snarky over something related to nutrition. Um, one of the letters to the editor we got regarding this topic, um, regarding our study, they said that vitamin B12 could be obtained through lifestyle. Now, okay, for the record, I do not think I know everything, okay? Now, actually, I am certain that I do not know everything. And so I started digging into the literature, digging into what was online, asking, how through lifestyle could you possibly get vitamin B12? Um, and I went to what I thought was a pretty good website for giving nutrient requirements um, for, for vegan diets. And that was with the Vegan Society over in the UK. They had a lot of good information for kids, for adults, for, for different physiological states, for what you needed to supplement in your diet. And they said, you need to supplement B12. So I replied back to this letter writer. Again, this is where the snark comes in. And I'll explain the last word if you don't understand. Um, we said, you know, it is not clear the basis for the proposition that lifestyle will provide adequate B12 to meet nutrient requirements. You know, some animals such as, okay, vitamin B12 is produced by microbes, bacteria in the guts of animals that, you know, such as ruminants, ruminants can absorb B12 further in the gut from the ones that are produced by the microbes, which are the only ones that produce them. Other animals consume animal products. An alternative is coprophagy. Okay, what coprophagy is? Um, way, way back when they were trying to understand vitamins, they decided that for chickens there was something that was a manure vitamin, okay? Because the, the chickens that ended up picking at the manure of cows and eating it did much better than the chickens that didn't. Coprophagy is eating poop, okay? Uh, be, because the vitamin B12 from the bacteria will end up there. So, um, never heard back from that letter writer. I hope he understood. Okay. Um, okay, I told you we didn't consider bioavailability, but, but again, the topic of this talk is what would the food supply look like if we got rid of animal ag, okay? And bioavailability, as I mentioned earlier, it matters because it's how much of what we eat can actually be absorbed and used to meet our needs. And so for what's in the research literature, if we look at eating iron, there's about a 14 to 18% bioavailability and absorption in mixed diets and 5 to 12% in vegetarian diets. The most available source of iron is going to be heme iron. And it's going to be higher in things like beef, okay? If we take a look at calcium, grams absorbed from one serving. I put it on a serving basis. Um, to give relative perspective, because it's not just how much can be absorbed, it's how much was there in the first place that you got. And so if we look at milk, which has one of the higher bioavailabilities and the higher concentrations of calcium, one serving is gonna give you 96.3 grams. Pinto beans, 11.9 grams, kale, 30.1, bok choy, 42.5. And so when you look at children and meeting their needs for calcium, you've gotta look at what might they be able to absorb and how much can they eat. And this study by Weaver et al. said that it would be a challenge for most people to meet their calcium requirements on a plant-based diet. Okay. 
based on the bioavailability and the amounts available. This gets us back to kids, and it gets us back to protein quality. Because I tell you what, there's a, there's a heck of a lot of protein that's produced if we went plants only. But would it meet the needs in the foods that we can actually consume? Okay. Uh, DIAS, uh, Digestible Indispensable Amino Acid Score. This is, a, this is a measurement that is supported by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, because what they're trying to do is look at, is the protein supply in the food that you can actually consume adequate to meet your needs, okay? And so it looks at amino acid digestibility of proteins in the small intestine relative to a reference protein. And for example, for infants, zero to six months, their reference protein is the pattern of amino acids that's in breast milk. And what they say is it affects growth and tissue repair. If you are a child and you're not getting the needed amino acids that are available to you for digestion and absorption in the profile you need, it will cause stunting, okay? Whether it's children or whether it's adults, it can affect immune function and how long an infection lasts and how badly you get it. Uh, muscle and skeletal mass, which is, can affect your ability to work. Mental performance, which I have known this to affect my ability to work. I mean, your, your ability to make decisions, your ability to work. Um, your mood, your sleep, detoxification of chemical agents, okay? So it's important to look at this score in the foods that are available relative to references, and they have a variety of different references depending on the age of the population that they're looking at for consuming the diet. And this is what those numbers look like. The DIAAS values, 40.2, okay, anything over 100% means it's in excess of the, like, the limiting amino acid for that particular food step. So wheat, 40.2. Corn grain, 42.4. We'd really like this number to be 100. Soybeans come close. I have a colleague who's also been looking into, though, does it matter how much phytoestrogen we consume at the same time we're consuming the soybeans? Phytoestrogens are also there. Do not have data on that myself. Peas, 64.7. Whole milk powder, we finally get over 100%. Beef, over 100%. A whole chicken egg, as opposed to just the yolk or, or the white, 116%. I mean, so things like soybean, they get us in range. But the animal products, can do an excellent job, and especially if you're dealing with a vulnerable population or low food intakes, trying to strike a balance so you meet the needs off of the array of foods that you could bring to the table would matter. Okay, so summary. Uh, just for that study, and then we'll, we'll sneak off into some other discussions, because you know, one of the things I was told for this talk, it's as we look forward, what do we need to do? What should we be looking at for the future? Okay, but the summary on the study that we did is that a change in the system for one purpose, like getting rid of animal ag, has other impacts. Yeah, you'd have more food, but you'd have more nutrient deficiencies and or excess calories. And what really threw people for a loop is that what we came up with had absolutely no resemblance to the vegan diets that have been studied. You can stay healthy on a whole variety of different kind of diets, but you do need to make sure you've supplemented the nutrients that you need. Um, and yeah, we got a small decline in greenhouse gases. Okay, but this whole thing opens the question, so fine. All right, Mary Beth, you've given us this, so what? Yo, what do we do? First things first, I will tell you, I cannot give you that answer. I, I'm not, it's above my pay grade, I am not that good, but, but it falls on all of us to figure out what do we do. And what we've got to look at, I think, are competition for resources versus non-negotiable needs. I mean, if you take a look at the goals of an agricultural system, let's put the first one as feeding people and food security. Then we go to non-food products. We have income, resource use, environmental impact, sustainability, and societal acceptability. Society has to buy in to how things run which means probably opening up a conversation. Those of you who are kind of familiar with dairy cattle and farms, 
have a different set of information from people who do not know, who are not familiar with farms. And so finding ways to communicate and understanding of what we do gets to be really important. And actually also listening to people say, have you thought about? I mean, when we're exploring agricultural systems and, and what we want them to be for what we need them to be, we've got to make sure we try to ask the right questions, have sound data, question our assumptions, or, or actually take a serious look at what are our assumptions and what are the opportunity costs. I mean, I put this picture here of you know, the parable of the blind men encountering an elephant for the first time, and depending on what portion of it they touch, this guy thought it, an elephant was a lot like a wall. This one, like a tree trunk. This one, handling the trunk was like a snake. This one said it's a sword. And whoever was dealing with the tail back there thought the elephant was very much like a rope. And I've got a feeling that, in part, unless we do a lot more discussion and collaborative work and cross-pollinization, we, we get into that with looking at what our agricultural systems need to be. I mean, so do we look at calories and protein and food portions? Or do we look at all nutrients and what we'd have to do to supplement the population to keep people well? Do we look at supply increase? I found one paper that made me crazy. Ugh. This is giving me flashbacks to that paper, where they figured, oh, don't worry. The supply of food will increase to meet demand. No! You can't assume that unless you explore it and say, there's a way to do this, OK? Which goes to the actual evaluation. And then with efficiency, gross energy, or human edible or inedible portion, versus fossil fuel or alternative uses. And I, OK, gross energy. There's at least one paper. Are you familiar with uh, the information out there that says um, beef cattle are only about 3% efficient with their energy per edible portion? This ring a bell? I look, I've read the paper. And what I've decided reading the paper and touching base with other people is that's based on gross energy. So they're basically also charging beef cattle for sunlight, the energy supplied by sunlight. Whereas if we got into fossil fuel or alternative uses, then you have opportunity costs. Okay? You've got to go back and look at what are your assumptions? What is the basis you're looking at? And is it the basis you want to interpret on? OK, things to consider, my opinion. Waste, we need a lot less food waste. We're going to be a lot, it's going to be a lot easier to feed people if we can get the food to them. And what energy source do we want? Sun? Or, or sun translated to electric? Or electric generated somehow else? And what does that look like? I mean, I've been no end, no end fascinated by the vertical farming systems that are running the system off of LED lights, let's say, that are on photovoltaic to vertically farm, let's say, lettuce. That's pretty cool. What is the efficiency there versus what we can accomplish with other systems? What are the costs? What does it look like? Okay, Water availability. Oh, my lord. Um, if currently 70% of our fruits and vegetables are irrigated, what do we need to do to perhaps improve efficiency of water use? For the non-food products, what are alternatives in all sorts of different stripes from what we're making for plant, from plants and from animals? Ah, supplements, I keep coming back to that. Producing enough of them and supplying enough of them so the people who need them get them. We do not want, we cannot afford any kind of horrific haves and have-nots. People need to be fed so they can thrive is no, 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 that's a little judgmental. People need, meeting people's nutrient requirements is very important to society for all sorts of reasons. And we need to see how we can do it. The economic impact, because farmers farm so they can earn a living. And what is it going to cost the people who want to purchase food or purchase any of the products? Non-greenhouse gases impacts on holding soil. Perennial crops do a fabulous job of that. And that's one of the things we look at at the Dairy Forage Research Center. How can we retain our soil resources and use our water resources well as well? And cropping viability, depending where. Okay? And water availability, ah, forgot earlier.
Do we use hydroponics? Do we rely on rain? Do we deal with irrigation? And under what conditions? Okay, at the end of the day, I'm like a quantitative kind of person. Um, a lot of things are subjective, but for a lot of this, we need to do something that's quantitative and integrates different pieces. So again, I, I'm a nutritionist. I think meeting the nutritional needs of the population is really important. Um, profitability to the farms is really important if they're gonna be on the land as part of sustainability. Land resource use and sustainability, so on into the future, we can keep using it to produce what we need. Environmental impact, Am I, why do I feel like I sound like headlines in the news? Um, use all acceptable tools. You know, I, I was no, out, no, no end intrigued also by like the, the GMO yellow rice that could help with vitamin A deficiencies. And there's been word that even over in the United Kingdom, they're looking more at the acceptability of GMO crops as opposed to calling them frankenfoods. I mean, I think we need to look at what society allows and we need to look at how we can serve society acceptably with the tools we've got and with the systems we've got. We do have to evaluate if these things are actually feasible as opposed to saying, you know, I got a really good idea. This, this is, there's no way this can't work. Um, right, okay. The, the one thing I will tell you, the last thing I have down here is ideology. This is Mary Beth's opinion. If we're looking, maybe some portion of this gets under what's acceptable to society, but, but it's more looking at, let's see if we can get some hard numbers for how things actually can work and see how they can be applied in the field. I mean, my background is both extension and research. And in extension, it's getting out in the field to work with the people who are actually trying to make things work. And that's crucial. Um, we need to do that so we can move forward. So in a world without animal ag, the, the way we modeled it, it wouldn't be good for the nutritional viability of people without a whole lot of other things happening. I will say that as we go forward, we need to figure out what is a sustainable balance using the resources that we've got. And that's actually wide open. It involves a lot of different choices, a lot of different information, a lot of different work going forward. I believe we can get there well, I think. Now, one thing to remember, you know, where we are now is not where we will be. It's just trying to make sure that where we will be is headed in the direction that we think is good. If you enjoyed this episode of The Dairy Show and want to view the presentation in its entirety and see that slide deck that Dr. Hall shared during her presentation, that full recording is available at worlddairyexpo.com along with complete recordings of the other educational opportunities that were presented during World Dairy Expo 2021. Uh, so that includes the expo seminars, virtual farm tours, dairy forage seminars, and even expo in Espanol. Again, worlddairyexpo.com for all of those great resources, or you can find them on our YouTube channel. But we will be back again with another episode of The Dairy Show in two weeks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Dairy Show. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe wherever you are listening to us today. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends about how much you are enjoying The Dairy Show. We would love to have them join us as well. And last but not least, if you have any comments for us, send us an email at wde at wdexpo.com. We would love to hear from you.